This morning's reading is from uh, 1 John, chapter 5, reading from verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is a testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe the God has made, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is a testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that what we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. If you can get that passage there in front of you, you'll find that really helpful. We'll uh, follow that along. We'll be finishing this morning our journey through John's first letter. John told us in his gospel that he wrote so that the readers would believe that Jesus was the Son of God and so have eternal life. And partway through this passage this morning, we hear that John wrote this letter so that those who do believe and have eternal life may know or that is experience that. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And that tells me something very simple. 
And that is that these believers were prone to not feel and to not experience the reality that the gospel achieves. And so I wonder whether we might identify with that. And so whether John might have something to say for us this morning. Because as John closes this letter, he wants these believers to know they have overcome. They are overcoming and they will overcome the world, whether or not they feel it. Because they have overcome through Jesus who overcame for them. And the message remains the same for us to this morning. I want to show you firstly in those first five verses here, we see a faith that leads to victory. As Churchill was sort of first appointed prime minister in the midst of the war, he gave a first speech to parliament and he said this, We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say, it is to wage war. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, it is victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. John's idea here is that faith is concerned with victory. A victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. And faith leads to victory here. Look at verse 1 there. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And there's a clear strain of logic here in John's mind and in his words. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, has been born again, has been born from above, has come to truly know God and to truly be his child. And here, belief and faith alone is what it takes to become a child of God. The only thing that takes us from out of the world and into God's family as his children is faith in Jesus' work for us. And John, throughout the course of this letter, has been specific about the form that that work took. He's used twice that word propitiation for our sins. That is that he has died for our sins in our place. That is, he has died to meet the right legal requirement and anger, therefore, that God has at his law having been broken, Jesus has paid the penalty that it's taken to remove that anger and in order to restore our standing before God. And through that work and that work alone, we stand as children before him. Everyone who believes has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Everyone who loves the Father. Here, faith, alongside it, comes this love. Another way of describing that moment, that process, that transition of having come to God the Father is having come to love him. 
because the faith is something that not only affects our head, it's not just an intellectual sort of statement to agree with, it is about our affections, our hearts, what we love, what motivates us, what we fear, what we long for. And that is only possible because God has first loved us. We've sung that this morning. It picks up from chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. So everyone who loves the Father also loves whoever has been born of him. If we love God, then we will also love God's children too. And we know this just in daily life, don't we, this reality, that we love those who are connected to those we love. We know that with our friends and with our family, with their children, don't we? We love their children in part because we love their parents. So there's John's thought. Everybody who has come to know God loves those who are of God. But how do I know that I'm actually loving people? Well, that's what John goes on to answer in verses 2 and 3. By this... We know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Why would that be logically the case in John's mind? That the way in which we know that we love other people is whether we love God and obey his commandments. You might think that he would point to some sort of physical experiential evidence of what we do for other people but he doesn't he says no our love for other people is shown by whether we love God and whether we keep his commandments see in the world the call to love others and the world does indeed call people to love one another but that call is rooted in a very personal motivation and moral sensitivity isn't it it's all about actually I should love other people because I should love other people And I will be able to do that as long as I have a personal motivation and until that I don't, and then I won't. See, rooting loving God's commands means that it should happen regardless of my feelings. And so it should be consistent. It gives love for others an actual chance to be consistent because it is not dependent upon my feelings If my ability to love one another is pegged and pinned to my desire, well, I might have a slightly longer fuse than some people, but it will burn out eventually, won't it? Now, our love for others is seen in do we love God, do we keep his commandments? And then notice what John says, his commandments aren't burdensome, or actually the word, they're not oppressive, They don't weigh you down. They're not heavy. They make for freedom, not oppression. These commandments are for everyone's good. That everybody, objectively, not just subjectively due to your sort of feelings and desires, are ordered not to murder one another is a good thing. And the apex of that commandment isn't not having killed people. Oh, today was a good day. I didn't murder anybody. Well, yeah. But the point of the commandment isn't just don't murder anybody. Actually, you could put it another way and say the point is to care for other people, isn't it? And those are for everybody's good. But we live in a world that says, if anything stops me from doing what I want to do, it is oppressive. 
not liberating. But John says, God's commandments are not burdensome. Then look at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. This is a universal truth for John. Everyone who has been born of God, not just an elite class of believers, everyone who has come to know God through Christ, has been forgiven through his saving work, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And that tells us, and we've thought about it before, John has said it, hasn't he, that the Christian life is in many ways a battle. But it is a battle that we win. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, this morning, you may not feel that you have won. You may not feel that you are winning. You may not feel that you will win. But in Christ, you have In Christ you are, in Christ you will. And this is a victory that is spiritual and eternal. It's not necessarily, in this life at least, material and physical, is it? The apostles themselves suffer and die. Are they to be seen as losers? No. Paul says, in fact, you know, if we've lived in this life only for Christ, then we are most of all to be pitied. The thing that drives him along is the knowledge of knowing Christ and what is to come in eternity. You may well, in this lifetime, experience sickness, poverty, broken relationships, rejection, failure, and yet God is still with you. But you will also experience little victories, little moments, little foretastes of the fullness of the glory that is to come, of heart change, of sins broken, of addictions lifted, a foretaste of the fullness of the victory of Christ to come. You will experience suffering, but you will also experience little wins. This is the victory that's overcome the world, John says, our faith. We might ask, just lastly, as we close this section, how is our faith victory in the world? Well, how about these three different ways that I could think of, at least? Faith is a victory in the world. It shows us having overcome in that Jesus has rescued us from out of the world. A world that is so stridently set out against God God has rescued us through Jesus from out of it. Secondly, God rescues us through Jesus single-handedly. We don't offer anything towards it. Nothing that you have done has possibly helped Jesus in saving you. There's nothing you could contribute. Anything that you would contribute would simply make it harder. It's like children coming to work, isn't it? It's, it's, It's not helping you. It's giving them the opportunity and the experience, but it's not actually helping. They're not objectively helping you build that house. They're not helping you timetable that school. They're not helping you to deliver that baby. Of course not. It's an experience for them to be alongside. 
Nothing you contribute helps Jesus to save you. You don't get 90% of the way and then Jesus just sort of gives you a bit of a boost over the wall sort of there at the end because you couldn't do the last bit. No, you tripped up and fell on your face before you even got to the wall. Jesus does it single-handedly. And then thirdly, Jesus overpowers the power of sin. We see and we experience and we taste in the world that sin is powerful. It exerts something of a control upon us and in our lives. But Jesus has overpowered that power of sin. And so through faith, we're saved and will be victorious and are already experienced victory as he changes us. There's a faith that leads to victory. But secondly, faith is to be based on evidence. If you look there with me at verses 6 to 12, that's what we see. And John has spoken in this way throughout the course of the letter. But this runs into conflict with the thought of the world. French philosopher Voltaire once said that faith consists in believing when it is beyond the power of reason to believe. Do you see that idea that he has in his mind is that faith is sort of when you stop thinking because if you really thought, then you wouldn't have faith. Real, critical thinking would never lead you to the place of faith. Faith is what happens when reason has sort of run to the end of its road. I don't know for you, but for me, growing up, faith seemed to be intellectual suicide. That is the abandoning of any sort of faculties of reason or critical thinking. And that's because faith was presented as not being rational or logical. And faith and reason were made sort of opponents, as if you couldn't possibly have faith and think. And for me and for many of my peers growing up, that just seemed utterly unattractive. And yet, the Bible never asks you to stop thinking, to believe. In fact, it asks you to think harder, to think clearer about what it is you think you know. And John's gospel has been based upon evidence. He began right from the very first verse. We have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Faith does not ignore the evidence. It trusts the evidence for the gospel. And John here presents three witnesses in verses 6 to 8 here. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Three witnesses, the water, the blood, the Spirit. Now, as John writes this to this group of believers, and especially he's written to a group of false teachers as well, countering some of their teachings, everybody, I think, would have agreed with the idea that Jesus had come by water. In a moment, I'll explain what John means by some of these things. The challenge was not everybody agreed with the idea of him having come by water and by blood. But it is by both of those things. Now, what does John have in his mind? What does he mean by speaking in this way? It's not immediately clear, is it? John picks up here the water and the blood and he uses them to speak of two major moments in the ministry of Jesus coming from the very beginning and the very end of his life from his baptism and his death. 
At Jesus' baptism, he was coronated. He was made king. He was declared king. He was declared to be the godly Messiah king ruler promised about to David and through the course of the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 3 records God the Father saying over Jesus, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that is a direct quotation from Psalm 2. That was a psalm that was used at the coronation of every king always in expectation of Jesus, the Messiah King, who would fulfill those verses. And God the Father declares this over Jesus at his baptism at the very beginning of his ministry. And so all agreed that at this moment, Jesus was God. But the false teachers, as we've thought about before, didn't believe that Jesus was God before this moment, but that he became godly in this moment. That in this moment, the spirit of Christ was united to a physical human Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And on the other hand, John has been very clear, began his gospel in this way, that Jesus was God before this baptism. In fact, he was God before his birth. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word, that's one of his titles for Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It speaks of the water of his baptism, it also speaks of the blood, that is of his death. At Jesus' death, his blood was spilt as an offering for our sin to save us from God's judgment. And the false teachers, though, said that Jesus wasn't God in that moment because God couldn't possibly die. So he must have died as a regular human being. So the Spirit of Christ is uh, placed upon Jesus at his baptism and rests with him through the course of his life up until his death and then it leaves him and he dies just as plain old Jesus again. But Jesus always was God He never hasn't been God, he never stopped being God, and he always will be God. So that the centurion says at the moment of Jesus' death, truly, this was the Son of God. The beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry and everything in between testify that Jesus was God. That's what John's getting at. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, he says. That as well as these two witnesses here, the water and the blood, the baptism and his death, the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus. We thought about last time the witness of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to think about it further, you can read John chapter 16 where it speaks of that. There's a ministry of the Spirit in the world. That the Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin, of righteousness and judgment. That is that... The Spirit gives the gospel message power. And that in the church, the Spirit moves to guide us into truth, to declare the things that are to come and to glorify Jesus. The very beginning of his life, the very ending of his life, and the Holy Spirit's witness all point to Jesus having been God from beginning to end and beyond. But John has a very different idea of the Spirit's witness. The false teachers would agree with the idea that the Spirit would witness to Jesus, 
But their idea of the Spirit's witness is these sort of personal and private, sort of sensational spiritual revelations that come quite apart from the gospel. But John's idea, the Bible's idea of the witness of the Spirit, is first and foremost the Word of God through the apostles now given to us in the Bible. That is how, first and foremost, the Spirit speaks and ministers to us then, today, and always until Jesus' return. And John says, these three agree. And then he makes this lesser to greater argument. Look at verse 9 there with me. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever doesn't believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. There's a lesser to greater argument. If we believe the testimony of human beings then shouldn't we even more so actually believe the testimony of God? And how do we find it? Well, there's no long search. It's not far away. It never has been either. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The word is very near. It's in your heart. It's on your mouth. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. To not believe God's testimony can never be a neutral act because it is to call God by nature a liar because he has clearly testified concerning himself. So there's no neutral position here, is there? And this is the testimony. Verse 11, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever doesn't have the Son of God doesn't have life. John reuses a theme from the beginning of his gospel account there, doesn't he? Uh, Let me remind you here of John chapter 1 from his gospel. I haven't written it down anyway. Never mind. You'll perhaps remember it anyway. Our faith is based in evidence. The testimony of God in the life and the death of Christ revealed for us in Scripture. There's a faith that's based on evidence. And lastly, faith produces certainty. We live in a world of doubt. Our world loves doubt. It says, in fact, many times, there are no absolute truths in life. Ironically, by the way, that is an absolute statement. You can't say that with any confidence. It sounds very clever. It's entirely stupid. And it all actually comes back, whether you realise it or not, a couple of hundred years or so, to the Enlightenment. René Descartes once said, I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. You hear what he's saying? The only way to really express any sort of proper thought is your ability to reason, your critical thinking, your rationality. 
But doubt has a father, doesn't it? We could go back much, much further to where doubt really comes from. It comes back to the garden, doesn't it? We've thought about that story a few times through our journey through this letter. It comes back to the serpent, doesn't it? Did God really say? And of course, yes, he did. Yes, he did. He said very clearly, and his word proved to be true. The God who formed land, who created stars, who filled the earth, who parted seas, who's calmed elements with just a word, can also say, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And it is finished. And we can trust that it'll have just as much power and authority today. Faith produces certainty. Look at verse 13 here. We see the audience and the purpose. I write these things to you who believe. It's the audience. These are Christians. These are believers. That you may know that you have eternal life. And the word there speaks about experience. You may know through experience. They've heard, but that doesn't mean they don't need reminding. They've heard, but it doesn't mean they don't need reassuring as believers. And this is the confidence, verse 14, that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. He hears and he answers our prayers. But he doesn't always answer them the way that we would like him to, does he? Because perhaps as you read and you hear those verses again, you think, well, I can think of many prayers I've prayed, but I didn't get what I wanted. He doesn't always answer our prayers the way we would wish that he would. But he hears, he answers. In time, we may perhaps grow to understand why he answers the way he did. But it gives us a confidence, doesn't it, to come before God and to make requests of him. And then there's a responsibility for one another, isn't there? Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, uh, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What does John have in his mind? What is this sin that may lead to death that's contrasted with sins that don't lead to death? I think John has in his mind that same sin that he's mentioned numerous times through this letter, that he's encouraged these believers not to take up, that some, the false teachers namely, have. It's the sin of apostasy. Of though once having been part of the church, once having heard the gospel, once having confessed allegiance to Christ, turning away from Christ, never to return. We, many of us, will have moments where we perhaps turn away for a time. We'll have moments where we stumble. We'll have moments where we kind of maybe wish we could go a different way. But God in his grace brings us back and we find our way back into 
the loving arms of God and back into his community. But these people are different. They have turned away. They've set their face against them, never to return. There's a stubborn, a sustained, and an unrelenting rejection of God here. That is what is in John's mind. There's no one particular action that leads to death as opposed to others. In fact, actually, all sin, however respectable it may seem to be, ultimately leads to death unchecked, even those sins that don't get treated quite the same way. Gossip, jealousy, envy, rivalry, uh, I, I don't know, all those sorts of things that can slip under the radar much more so than saloon bar sins. All sin leads to death ultimately, if unchecked. But this is about those who have simply turned away from God and refused to come back. And the love that believers have for one another and for God is expressed here in caring for one another, in helping one another, in protecting one another. But I think maybe we need to be careful in how we define what sin is and isn't. Because offending you isn't sin. Someone not sharing your tastes and your preferences is not sin. Someone having a taste or a conviction that you don't like isn't sin. That, in fact, actually is all about your ego and pride. Sin is what offends God, what contradicts God's commands. And so we need to also be clear what does and does not deal with sin. Let me give you three things that don't really deal with sin, but you might be tempted to take up. Um, one thing that does. Things that don't deal with sin. Firstly, a saviour complex. Your influence, your coaching, your guruing, your advice won't kill the presence of sin in your brother or sister. You're not their 